Today, Eric and I are going to go on a rant. <laughs> I had a client forward me an email uh, very recently. She's been a client for several years. And uh, the, the article that she forwarded me was a Forbes article called Why Investing in Insurance Shouldn't Mix Despite What TikTok Says. And I will tell you that I read it and I have lots of opinions and you guys are going to get them today. <laughs> yeah. I don't typically throw shoes at my monitor when I read stuff, but you know, this one got a couple. Occasionally it happens. Yeah. Um, honestly, I had a chance to talk to one of our compliance officers uh, over the last week. And I told, I asked him specifically, I said, if I decide to make social media posts that say, do better Forbes, are we going to get sued? <laughs> <laughs> and he said, it depends on what's in the article. So we'll kind of go through this. We'll so, just read it. Um, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll walk you through the article and then give you our opinions on this. But I think it's really important if we're going to sit here and we're going to talk about the importance of balancing insurance and investments as part of a financial plan that you get the entire story as opposed to a biased version of it um, or an inadequate analysis of something. And so we're just going to kind of go through parts of this. If you are watching on YouTube, you can actually see the entirety of the article um, but you can also just Google it and just Google Forbes, why investing in insurance shouldn't mix despite what TikTok says, and you will be able to find it very easily. This article came out on July 6th, so it is brand new. Right, um, it's only recent. a couple of days old as we're actually recording this. Yeah. And, and it's funny, uh, somebody once told me, you can tell how much someone understands by the questions they ask. And in the article, you can tell how much people understand about insurance, about investing, and about some of the other components by the assumptions that they leap to. Like they're leaping to some right. inaccurate assumptions. So, right. so I think um, I think there are a few good points here as well. So yeah. we want to make sure that you can see where we agree and where we don't agree, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, it, it just starts out by saying if you spend time following the social influencers on TikTok, you may start to get some crazy ideas about money. Um, and I'm going to say off the bat, that's probably not wrong. Um, I myself am not on TikTok at the moment, um, only because I'm afraid I'll go down a rabbit trail that I never come back out of. But, um, but I do think it is really interesting that there are so many people on social media who are giving financial advice that aren't licensed. And so I do think that one of the things that is really important is that you pay attention to the licensing or the experience and or the experience of the person who is giving advice. Yep. So we're going to skip the first couple of paragraphs here because they're actually not about insurance at all. They're about NFTs, um, other things like that. And so- you know, we want to kind of jump down to a little bit further into the article. So Eric, if you want to kind of kick that off. Yeah. So can you guys see that? Can you see that, Mary? Yes. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. So it seems to be a haven for financial influencers who want everyone to rush out and buy permanent life insurance with an investment component. So that whole first line just makes me cringe. Right. So I think one of the things that we frequently talk about is that with very few exceptions, it does not make sense to mix life insurance and investments, that it makes more sense, product. right, in terms of products. So you don't necessarily want to buy an insurance product that has investments inside of it. And the reason that we believe this is partly to do with the fee structure. And if you look at a whole life insurance policy, the mortality expenses are levelized and contractually guaranteed, 
Whereas just about every insurance tool on the market that has an investment component has increasing mortality expenses. So they start off low when you're young, but they increase exponentially as you get older. And the closer you are to mortality uh, experience and um, life expectancy, and especially when you go beyond it, the fees become astronomical because they know you're getting closer to graduating from the planet. And so the fact that those are exponentially increasing and in all but one contract that's on the market right now, Um, They also have adjustable fee structure so the company can raise the fees without notifying you. Um, We really don't advocate for that. And actually just about the only time I can see that making a whole lot of sense, and there's a couple, but one of the few times that I could see it making sense is in deferred compensation plans um, for people who have a younger uh, population, just because you get a deferral on the income. Right. taxes as it is growing. But that's really about one of the only times that we would recommend something of that. And even then, if we were looking at it, we would want the contractually fixed fee structure, which is only offered on one contract in the market today. Yeah. And the other line on here that I thought was really interesting is, and, and you can tell again, how much they understand by the words that they're using, is that young people would be better off buying whole life insurance instead of saving in a 401k plan. And we would have never said that. It is not either or, it's and. Right. Right. It Uh, makes sense to do both, right? right. And I think this this is a real key here. If we believe in diversification, which we do, it makes sense to have multiple tools, right? right? It is- I don't play golf with one of my clubs. Well, I don't play golf at all because I suck at golf, but in theory- (laughs) Your story. You don't play golf with just a seven iron, right? Right. We don't want to have only drivers in our portfolio. We really have to make sure that we have drivers and putters. So understanding what you're using the tool for is incredibly important, but we believe it should not be an either or decision. It is an and decision. And there is an appropriate balance between whole life insurance and your investments. Right. And that is mathematically calculated too much, too little, you lose efficiency. Yeah. The other line I thought was interesting, and we reached out to other experts who wanted to explain why this should take place. And I'm trying to figure out who these experts are. Well, I think they might quote them here later Uh, in the article. It's like you've read this. Yeah. So So, here you go. go. No, go go ahead. ahead. So we have this uh, Darren, boy, I'm not even going to try to pronounce that last name. Uh, But if Centurion Wealth says investing in an insurance shouldn't mix, And for more than one reason, first, you have two completely different objectives that you're trying to achieve and life insurance with an investment component tries, but fails to combine them into one product. No complaints with that sentence. Yeah, I am 100% okay with that. That actually confirms the analysis that, uh, that we have done ourselves. You want the life insurance separate from the investment component. You don't want to combine them. So I liken this to going to see a doctor. If you see a specialist, they are really good at one thing. If you see a generalist, they know a little bit about a lot. And so if you think about what you're looking for, you really want specialists working for you because you're going to get enhanced performance. When you get a tool that's trying to do too many things, it doesn't do anything well. Yeah, I agree. So talk about this last paragraph though. Okay, go ahead. No, go for it. So, cause he's talking about this idea of like, I'm with him for the first half of the sentence. And then he just goes off the rails in the back half. Okay. So in other words, by the life insurance you need to protect your family, 
then find ways to invest for your goals separately. So I actually don't take a whole lot of issue with that, except where it says buy the life insurance you need. I really think yeah. that should be a want, not a need. Right. Because what I need for my family is not a whole lot. What I want for them is the world. And when I think about that particular sentence, so I maybe had a different response to this a little bit than you did. If something happens to me, I don't want anything to change about my family's lifestyle. If I'm not here, it's already going to be hard enough emotionally. I want my kids to live in the same house and the same school district with all the same opportunities they were going to have if I was here providing financially. And the same is true if anything happens to my husband. It's already going to be rough enough. I want to know that if, if I lose my partner on this journey, that financially nothing changes. Right. Right. That is a want. That is a yeah. personal want of mine. That is not a need, right? I could obviously get by on less, but why would I, why would I want to do that? Right. And then finding ways to invest for your goals separately. Maybe it's outside of the policy, but it doesn't mean you can't use some of the policy right. to acquire assets that produce income. So this, this to me, and I think maybe this is where you were going, Eric, is indicative of a very bucketed mindset, one yep. tool doing one thing, as opposed to thinking about things in terms of creating a dynamic system where you can use your dollars in more than one way. Yeah, Robert Castellone talked about this in a book called Leap, Lifetime Economic Acceleration Process. And he talked about this idea that stagnant money is bad money and flow is good, right? That's right. money in motion is the way to make wealth. And on the life insurance piece, I'm going to get slightly philosophical for 30 seconds, but somebody once told me, and it's true, that the life insurance policy you have is the most powerful love letter you'll ever write. So uh, I always like that one. Yes, I like that too. All right. So then we, we jump into, um, according to financial planner, David Fowler of High Mountain Financial Coaching, life insurance products just won't give you the same returns over time as a disciplined, well-built investment portfolio will. So I'm going to say nine times out of 10, that's an accurate statement. I don't really want to take issue with that at all. Right. But again, this goes to incomplete analysis. Some tools are really meant to help you with accumulation and other tools are really meant to help you with distribution. And so if we are looking at this from a, a lopsided lens or a myopic telescope here, and we only wanna talk about rate of return, the statement is true. However, it's leaving a lot of information out. So Eric, you right. had some specific responses to this when you and I were first talking about this article. <laughs> and I think this is at least one of the shoes that got thrown at the monitor on this one. But yeah. he talks about this idea. He said, for example, the S&P 500 has averaged about 10.5%, give or take, over the last 50 years. He's wrong in that analysis, by the way. It's like 8.9 to 9.2, but who's splitting hairs? Uh, he says, yet insurance products that are designed as protection vehicles don't offer any returns anywhere near that range. And so the, the funny part of that is, you know, the, the, old the old saying is, well, in the long run, we're all dead. If I look at the market over the last 50 years, yeah, it might be close to 10.5%. If you look at the last 13 years, the market rate of return in the S&P was about 14. The previous 13 years was about five, five and a quarter. And so, yeah, over the next 50 years, you might get 10.5%, but it depends on which 50 years you're looking at and when your 50 years comes to an end. So if I'm retiring at the end of uh, 1999 or 2000, and that's the first 15 years that I get, or the first 13 years of retirement that I get are 2000 to 2010, I've had a really bad cycle, right? 
well, but don't worry about it. The long term is 10. Well, it depends on when your term hits. Right. So timing is important. Right. Which sequence you get actually really yeah. matters. And we talk about that a lot. And then he kind of at the end of that first paragraph, he says that whole life and universal life policies can have you paying premiums for 15 to 20 years just to break even in terms of the value of the policy. I'm going to say that if that is the case and that's what's happening in your whole life insurance policy or your universal life policy, that it isn't structured correctly. You've right. So if you structure it correctly, mm -hmm. your break even can happen anywhere from year five to year 10. And, and what we're talking about when he says break even is cash on cash, right? For the cash I've put in, I now have that much cash, but he is completely negating the value of the death benefit. And he is completely negating how your distribution changes on the back end for income creation. I was actually just going over this because I'm writing a book right now. And so I had built out an example that's from a real client um, to go through the numbers on the book. And it was really interesting because what we saw for this particular client was that when he got to retirement, his net worth was $1 million lower than it would have been if he had put all of his money into the market because he purchased whole life insurance. So you hear that and you're like, oh my gosh, that sounds terrible. But because he had the whole life insurance and that changed the distribution strategy, assuming the returns are the same and the investments and all of that, in this particular instance, the client actually got to spend an additional $2.4 million during his lifetime. So it depends on what you're looking at. Are you looking only at net worth or are you looking at how much of your money you actually get to enjoy? Because I can tell you for me, it's not just about saving money so I can say, look how much I have in my bank account. It's about putting the money away so that it increases and enhances the life I get to live while I'm here on the planet. And if I can do that in a way that also means I get to leave more behind, I'm pretty excited about that. And then I kind of rebuilt again, okay, what, what actually happens if I take that initial, here's my plan, I build the same thing, but then I use the, um, the asset to create income. And in this example, we used, we used real numbers from a real client who purchased roughly a half million dollar property that's cash flow positive 36,000 a year. And if we redid that and rebalanced it, we were then ahead by even more. So that from start, the very start value they were gonna get to spend to the end, there was actually in that case, almost an additional 7.5 million that they got to spend in income because they had income producing assets and pursued the distribution strategies that we talk about. And so I think you have to be really careful about questioning what you are reading because if the analysis is not complete and we are just talking about returns, that could actually mean more money in your bank, but less money for you to enjoy during your lifetime. Right. But I don't take net worth to the grocery store. I take income to the grocery store. That's what I care about. Right. Right. Um, so let's skip through a little bit. Uh, Heinemann, who's this uh, Kurt Heinemann, I'm hoping I'm pronouncing his name correctly here. Uh, says his client was sold a whole life policy for their newborn child. And that was told by the insurance salesperson that'd be a good way for them to save for college. Since well, and I, I want to go back up to that previous conversation real quick. He oh, said yeah, that's right. He offered the example of someone who invested in whole life insurance and came to regret it based on long-term returns. Right. So let's talk about long-term for a second, because long-term is not when your kid turns 18. Years, yeah. Long-term is over a lifetime. Right. And so I think the time period you're doing an analysis is really important. 
but also how you're using it is really important. So I just want to throw that out there and I'll give it back to you, Eric. No, absolutely. And that's, and that's the whole back end of it, right? They were going to be a great way for them to save for college since they could use the cash to pay for college and tuition. The client was spending a few thousand dollars a year in the policy, yet it only had 18 grand. And then he goes on, and this is sort of the classic argument, but if they had put the same amount of money in a 529, yielding 8%, they would have had $74,900 for college. The challenge is, is that, to Mary's point, 18 years is not a long-term investment. 18 years is a fairly short-term window. And I don't know how many kids are going to college for the first time up here in September or August, just a month away, and the market is down 20, 25% for the year at this point. So if you're about to walk into college and the market- You now have three years of college education, save four instead of four. Surprise. Right. And so that's the beauty of of whole life on that side, just at a a fundamental level is it doesn't go anywhere. It's not- now let's, let's be honest for a second. If we go with these assumptions, even if you lost 25% of that $75,000, you would still have more than 18,000 sitting there. Right. But I don't have the illustration in front of me that he is quoting. And he just says a few thousand dollars. So we don't actually know how this policy is being funded. If it's being funded for liquidity, that would produce a different result than if it's being funded for death benefit, even with the whole life insurance policy. So I think it's really important here. Full disclosure, Eric and I have our series seven and well, I always forget this one. Is it the 65 or the 66? We're man, we, we are regulated by both FINRA and the SEC. And then we also have our insurance licenses. So we have all the licenses necessary to do the types of investing that we're talking about in this article and the types of saving. And so here, here's what I would say for me personally, I made the decision when I had kids to put money into a whole life policy for them. And we have a whole podcast about how to save for college using a whole life insurance policy. And there are some steps that are being left out here right? Because part of the way I look at it for my kids is that I want the guarantee. I don't want a loss of money. I just want predictability because the one, you know, I'm willing to lose money on my own, um, but I am not willing to lose money for my kids. That, that is a, that is a very different risk. I want guarantees for them. And if that means that I have to save more to make sure that that's the case, I'm game. The other thing that I don't love personally about a 529 is that I don't like being told that I have to use it for education or I'm going to take penalties on the growth. Right. I just do not do not like that because what if my kid decides they're an entrepreneur? What if my kid um, you know, decides that she's brilliant at cutting hair and she wants to go open a hair salon? I don't want, I don't want penalties on that money. And so I like the freedom of using it however I want and then I can borrow against it to go buy real estate. And at the end of the day, my kids will have all the cash in the cash value, right, of the insurance contract. They'll have the death benefit, which is very important to distribution on the back end, right? They'll have a volatility buffer when they graduate from, um, or or a market shock absorber when they graduate from college. So they'll end up with the insurance policy, real estate, right, the equity in that real estate and the income from that real estate and a college degree. And that is a lot more than they will have if I save up money in a 529 and then give it to the university, because at the end of that time period, yes, my kid will have a college degree, but nothing else. And so if I can use the same dollars, even if it means I have to save a little bit more, if I can get that many more benefits and I eliminate cost, 
right? Because let's talk opportunity cost. If I spend 200 grand sending my kids to college and that money's just gone forever, my kid gave up on the, the growth on that dollar amount for the rest of their lifetime. Forever. So if I can find ways to preserve that and keep it going, that's really important to me. The last 20 years of compounding is the best part. So why would I want them to start 20 years later? Well, and how many of us start saving when we're 25 or 30, right? right? And we don't get the sweet end of the curve until we're <laughs> whatever that is, 60, 70 years old, but they get the kids. If you've got compounding for 60, 70, 80 years, that's magical. That's that's pretty right. that's pretty sweet. Last right. part of this, and I think I, I find this completely hilarious. Brian Walsh, who works as a financial planner at SoFi, says there are several conflicting conflicts of interest to be wary of when it comes to mixing life insurance with investments or listening to anyone on TikTok. I love the uh, the saint on one end that's the popper and makes no money and uh, and the everyone else on the other end that's offering advice is just in it for themselves. And like, well, there are a lot of people on this article, Brian Walsh included, who makes money on you investing your money with him. And I don't well, begrudge and, Brian that, but no, we're all we're all out here banking money, right? I mean, that's right, the reason that's that the you work. Goal. You have family to support, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the advice you're giving is unethical because you're getting paid. So, Eric, if you'll scroll down just a little bit here, because he actually goes into it a little bit more, right? What what he talks about is the barriers to entry for the insurance industry are extremely low. And the barriers for sharing information, often misinformation on social media are even lower. People on TikTok may have their own incentives to espouse the virtues of permanent life insurance, including sponsorships or their own sales of these products. So I think to your point specifically, Eric, let's be honest, everyone who is in, interviewed in this article is making money selling investments. So there is something. a reason they do not like insurance because right. they are selling investments and that takes dollars out of their pocket. Yep. So- Again, let's just be real honest that if we're going to point the finger and say, these people are doing this to make money, my next question is, are you making money with your advice? And if the answer is yes, does that mean I shouldn't listen to you? No, right. it doesn't. It just means I need to ask more questions, right? right? And so wait, he says, also note that insurance salespeople, which often refer to themselves as financial advisors, are financially incentivized to sell permanent life insurance via large commissions they receive upfront when someone buys a policy. So let's be really clear. The only people in the financial services industry who can call themselves financial advisors have to have advisory licenses. You right. cannot call yourself an advisor if you do not have investment licenses. And if you do, guess what? They will find you and you will be fined and you will potentially lose other licenses. You know where you are. So, They've seen where you I'm, sleep. They will find exactly. you. Exactly. So I'm not going to say that no one is doing it, but from a regulatory perspective, insurance salespeople are not allowed to call themselves advisors. They may call themselves financial professionals or financial representatives, but they cannot use the word advisor unless they right. have investment licenses. So I think it's important to understand that. And then we're going to talk a little bit about in incentives to sell permanent insurance via large commissions. So we actually did an entire podcast. I think it's episode number 155 about how your advisor makes money. And what I will tell you is over the life of the client, your investment advisor will make a lot more money charging 1% in fees than your insurance advisor. Right. Right. And when so, the insurance contract is set up properly for liquidity and for growth and flexibility, the insurance advisor 
Well, and actually we shouldn't say advisor, right? Didn't I just go on a rant oh, for that? Did. The insurance, the insurance person, the insurance <laughs> sorry, I did that. I started that because <laughs> I said advisor too many times and then it was stuck in it's my stuck head in our brains. Don't think about pink elephants. So <laughs> the, the insurance professional, if they are designing the policies correctly, typically take anywhere between a 40 and a 60% pay cut to design the policies correctly. Right. Um, and it's not, again, for, in my experience, it's not because they're angels who, uh, Mother Teresa, who want to live in poverty in order to give you what you want. It's best for you. They're designing a policy that is best for you long-term. Right. And that includes flexibility. And guess what? When they reduce their compensation in order to give you that flexibility and take that pay cut, that money shows up in your contract. Right. right. It's, yeah. it's not front-loading the fees in quite the same way. So it's really important to understand um, specifically what questions to ask in this situation. Yeah. And, you know, the reality is that there is a very low barrier to entry in the insurance industry, but it's sure. not that much higher on the investment side of things. I mean, I, I think I took a two-day crash course to get my insurance license when I was 21. It's a pass-fail test. I passed it with a 94. I definitely know people in our business that failed it several times before passing it, but that's also true of people getting their Series 7 um, or any of their other series investment licenses. Yeah. So the, the reality is, I think it's very important to ask the right questions. What are you trying to accomplish? If the only thing you care about is having a lot of money in the bank, then just analyzing rate of return is fine, right? right? But if you care about maximizing the income that you get to spend and enjoy during your lifetime, you're gonna make very different decisions because you have a different goal. And so I think it's important when reading articles like this that you understand what your orientation is, right? If you think about the OODA loop that we OODA talked loop. about before, I can observe this, but because I know my orientation, I can make specific decisions about what is and isn't relevant to me in this article. Right. So the, the title, I think, is actually an interesting title. We, we believe you should not combine your investment and your insurance into the same tool, but that doesn't mean that you can't leverage your investment tool to acquire investments, and now you're keeping them separate. But rather than making either or decisions, you're making and decisions. Right. And I, I think want, it's the I want net worth and income. Right. And I want net worth and income and legacy. I care about other people besides me later on, which I think is right. a, a broader part of that. So. so Eric, where can they find you? Economics with Eric at Instagram and Facebook. And you can find me at The Wealth Woman anywhere you social media. Thanks, guys. Thanks, we'll see guys. you next time.